0: everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. No time. No time for love, Dr. Jones. That's what I say. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, so I'll start with what I watched. Oh, this is it's been so long. Um that I'm forgetting that I actually found time in the last three weeks to sit down and just watch a movie for fun. Oh, Which boy. I have not done. I think that's the only one on this list that is this. Um, but I had been meaning for years to watch Olivier Assayas's The Clouds of Stills Maria. Oh, okay. Because I love Olivier Assayas. I missed that one at AFI Fest for a very specific, particular reason that still makes me mad, okay. which is that, you know... Film festivals, the intros at film festivals. When we did like listeners. I know you haven't listened to the episode that Scott and Julie and I did. Good lord, no! But we talked about this there. They're just like when it was a film festival and they introduced the me, it always goes too long. Oh, that hurts yeah. you being able. To, so I didn't get into Claus of Sils Maria because the guy introducing uh, Black Coal Thin Ice, which is a perfectly fine movie, uh, went on too long, and so uh, I never did catch up with it for some reason. And um, yeah, I love Olivia Sias, and this was. Shortly after I had watched nonfiction which I think, which I think we talked about on the mm-hmm. last uh, movie journal the 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 um Olivia says, movie that's just about to come out anyway so
1: a qu- question okay if you were tapped to introduce a film uh-huh. would you just like give yourself a five minute time time limit and like and like plan ahead and all of that yeah
0: and i would also make a big show of it i would like (laughs) i would literally like that's true the intro of my thing would be i'm setting a timer and here's why and i'd set down my phone and when the alarm goes off whether i'm done or not time to start the movie
1: (laughs) and then i would hope everyone follows my lead and you'd be like and incidentally uh, you stand on the right and you walk on the left oh yeah that's true (laughs) that's that's your go-to i know that
0: yeah stand on, uh, on escalators stand on the right stand on the right walk to the left also um And although I read, I, oh, we're so far off topic already. I read a thing about that where it's like where someone was like the, the from a I don't know sociological sociological or just general study like that stand to the right, walk to the left. Actually, in the in the big picture, it slows more people down because mm. they have less room to stand. Right. And so, but my. My point of view is fuck those people. If they wanted it, if they didn't want it to take as long, they can walk up the left. Yeah, yeah. So stand true. to the right, walk to the left on escalators. Also, my other thing is, what do you have to do that's so important that you can't take time to walk your grocery cart over to the little sure. receptacle, the little the little stable, whatever you want to call it. Yes. Uh, before taking off, you unload your groceries into the car. You take 15 seconds out of your life. Yeah.
1: You don't even have to go all the way back to the building. They got those things all over the place. I know, place.
0: right? Yeah. Yes. Um, so
1: anyway, these those are... The Clouds of Sils Maria, that's anyway, the yeah, question. Anyway, have you seen it? I have not. I heard I heard great things. Yes,
0: I think you would really love it. It's uh, The premise is uh, Julia Binoche plays an actress um, who's, uh, you know, she's Julia Binoche's age, but when she was in her early 20s, she had sort of become famous on stage playing this role in a, in a, in a play. Uh, I forget what the play is called. Um, within the movie, it's not a real play. Oh, it's um, not the odd
1: couple. No. Okay. Uh,
0: she's playing the younger woman in a, a play that's by a young woman and an older woman. Mm. So now she's here. It is 25 years later or whatever. And this director <laughs> wants to restage the play, casting her as the older woman and right. casting, um, uh, Chloe Grace Moretz, not as herself, but as a sort of, uh, I, not really a Chloe Grace Mertz type weirdly more of a Kristen Stewart type oh okay and Kristen Stewart's in the movie yeah in that she's like sort of um, an actress Chloe Grace Mertz is playing an actress who's very famous for sort of very big youth oriented Hollywood movies mm-hmm. but that obviously that has and she has a lot of press around her and stuff and a lot of paparazzi um, but also is a, actually a very talented actress okay and then Kristen Stewart plays Julia Benoche's assistant um and so Julia Benoist is sort of uh um, you know struggling with uh all these issues around basically aging mm-hmm. uh, um but of course it's more it's not as superficial uh, as that it's also a movie that's about the creative process and about the idea of um an actor's ownership of a character mm-hmm. you know once they've interpreted that character, especially when they were the first to interpret that character, um, would it ever be possible for them to play anyone else in the play? Right. You, know what you know what I'm saying? Like Julia Pinoche is trying to do what she's been hired to do, but she can't, she can't stop seeing the character she's now playing from the younger woman's point of view, because right. that was
1: her first. Yeah. And that's always. even though she's older now, that will always be a part of her. It's like, uh, Al Pacino, um, was recently on stage playing, uh Shelley the Machine Levine in a stage version of uh or a stage production of Glengarry Glenn Ross. Yeah. And so, you know, he played Roma in the film. Yeah. Playing like the the slick, fast talking upstart, and now he's playing the older yeah. down on his luck kind of guy. And it's like that must be uh that's fascinating. I'd love to see it. Uh yeah, but, uh, so uh, Olivier says is, uh, I
0: honestly think he is one of the greatest directors working today and when his career is in the rear view of sometime in the hopefully distant future, I think he will be remembered as one of the all-time great hmm. film directors. Um, and Claudio Sosmaria Maria is r- right up there with the best of his work in that he tends to make like movies that are very talky, mm-hmm. but he's not solely a like dialogue driven director. There's also, um, so many incredibly beautiful, uh, not just scenic cinematography, but sort of, um, framing that's, and, and mise-en-scene that's laden with a lot of, uh, symbology and metaphors and stuff. This one, it's in the title the clouds of Sils Maria is a real thing. Um, uh, within the movie uh about this uh these mountains in Switzerland where when the weather's right the clouds sort of snake along the river and you people go up to the top of the mountain to watch the clouds like oh, come through the river and so you get to sort of kind of see that a couple of times it's it has fun with playing with like mm-hmm. is uh, is the snake to keep calling it the snake like yeah. is the snake happening today and then like even when you see it, you're like, "Is that a full snake, or is this like <laughs> are there date when the snake is more snaky?" Yeah. Um, and that all plays into to all these things. Uh, and uh, yeah, Kristen Stewart is terrific. Julie Benoche is, I think I said when we talked about nonfiction, maybe my favorite actress. Um, uh, yeah, it was terrific. We I can't talk about it all day. Okay. Uh, oh yeah, I have another you one have to it, talk yeah. about. Uh, the next one I talked about all right you can we already read my review online so i won't get too into it i saw tina gordon's little which yeah. is uh not officially a remake of big the way that t because t- tina gordon wrote and directed little she also wrote what men want mm. which is officially a remake of what women want right little i don't know why enough stuff is different yeah you know i mean it's it's a different gender it's a girl instead of a boy it's a black person instead of a white person and they it's a an adult who gets little instead of a kid who gets big it still seems
1: too similar and the name is yeah i think they i feel like what does she make a a wish that i wish i were little or just no someone else
0: so basically she's a mean lady and she's mean to the kid like the she owns this company it's a regina hall Okay, she owns this company, and there's a donut guy who, like, a donut truck who shows up outside, and she hates the donut truck guy, and she's mean to the donut truck guy's daughter. Okay, who's like a budding magic enthusiast and a big nerd. Okay and so I, and we realized that oh she sees because she was a big nerd and she runs like a tech company she's still a smart woman right. but she was a big nerd growing up and she maybe is mean to this girl because she sees parts of her past that she didn't like in her yeah. but the, the girl makes a the girl wishes the right. little girl wishes that Regina Hall were yeah. little and then she shows up and, and then for 24 what,
1: hours she couldn't tell a lie
0: uh, <laughs> right yes <laughs> uh, I haven't seen that one in forever mm-hmm. more tyranny right
1: Yes. In Liar Liar? She's yeah. the love interest? Is that no, right? No, I think she's the she's the, the, the kid's mom.
0: Oh, she's the ex-wife.
1: Yeah. Kid's mom and ex-wife, yes.
0: Oh, right, because it is his kid. Yeah. yeah. See, I haven't seen Liar Liar in so long. Yeah. Uh, Rob Shadiak? Is that Tom
1: Shadiak? Tom Shadiak, yeah.
0: yeah. Um, anyway, there's a, a game of Galaga
1: going on outside, yeah. apparently. That is a... It's done now, but like... That was a very strange and I would say delightful car alarm. Yeah. Probably not for the, for the listener, but yeah. uh, it was unexpected. It really I, did sound like wreck Ralph <laughs> going yeah. on back there. Um,
0: anyway, so uh, I, I, I'm not going to go too much into, you get the, you know what happens in the <laughs> yeah. movie. Uh, it's not particularly funny. You've got uh, Issa Rae uh, is the co-lead. She plays Regina Hall's assistant who mm-hmm. ends up being the only one who like believes her. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when she shows up as, as a little girl. Um, Regina Hall is obviously funny, but she's not, she's only in at the beginning and the right. end. Um, and there's a couple of the, Mikey Day from Saturday Night Live. Uh, do you know him? He's a, He was on the newer Saturday okay. Night Live guys. Yeah. Uh, he shows up as like the big client, and he, he's got some funny stuff, because he talks about like, interesting there's some you know something that came up a few months ago in the real world was uh, I can't remember what magazine and I can't remember which Jenner but described one of the Jenner (laughs) girls as like the youngest self-made billionaire or whatever Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, Mikey Day plays a character who's like that who's quote unquote self-made except he comes from a ridiculously wealthy background you know um uh, but he's only in a, a few scenes um, so the, but I've got another a couple other things I want to talk about uh, I normally I uh, PG-13 the movie is rated PG-13 which means they get one fuck okay and I always judge a, a, I don't completely judge a movie on this but I always look for how the PG-13 movie uses okay. its one fuck okay now they made the right uh, it's the obvious choice but it's the right choice to give the one fuck to the little girl of course obviously yeah but they didn't actually make it a funny line they just uh-huh. had her like it's almost like she, like it feels so forced like oh, we needed to get her saying fuck here so she like in the middle of saying other things to Issa Rae's character is like you lying fuck but it <laughs> see even the way I said <laughs> it is funnier agree, than it was yeah, in yeah. the movie um, it's a complete toss like away I, I was kind of disappointed with the use of uh, fuck. The one thing uh, here's because I don't want to talk too much about the movie itself. You know what to expect. I didn't think it was that great. It's also not terrible. But there is something that I think uh, if you fi- if you're part of my Twitter, you've definitely heard about this. Um, there's a joke that Regina Hall's character makes early on about her neighbor's kid. That is a it's I, I, I can't mince words. It's a transphobic joke. Oh, okay and um it cl- it really uh it yeah it, it dropped with a thud for me it, mm-hmm. it 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 really felt ugly and uh completely unnecessary and i and also the the woman the credited screenwriter um not Tina Gordon who's mm-hmm. the co-screenwriter but the other woman whose name I forget had said, I didn't write that. Like, I don't know when that came up, if that was something that came up on set or if that was, just, uh, touched up later. I didn't write that. She's distanced herself from it. And I kind of want it like, because this happened a cup two or three years ago on, of all things, the best show, which is a oh, okay. podcast that I've talked about a lot where one of John Worcester's characters said something transphobic. Okay. and, and people sort of uh the best show fans are very respectable and just they didn't like uh try to you know cancel john Worster. they basically just like wrote or e- like emailed or called in to and say you know said i don't think that was cool and but the, his I, characters are usually buffoons and, and and this is the thing okay in little her character this is at the beginning before she's learned her lesson she's supposed to be a jerk okay but i do think there's it's it's like that's a big card to play yeah. for, for just a little character <laughs> touch. And I yeah. think in both cases, um, I mean, Tom, uh, Tom on the best show made a, you know, addressed it the next week and said, here's what we were trying to do. And we understand why yeah. it didn't come across. That we were trying to, I think, he, I think he handled it very respectfully. Um, there's been mostly silence on the part of, uh, Tina Gordon or yeah. Regina Hall or whoever, uh, on this, but, um, it, yeah, it seems, uh, you know, it seems interesting. It's just, there are... I, I don't know how to put it... I, I wouldn't know how to write down rules, you know? But there's things that you shouldn't
1: say, you there, know? Well, and also there's this... Uh, so I... I watch red letter media stuff and they watch and they often watch like these really crappy B movies and a a thing that they have said from time to time is they'll be watching a particularly bad also like Self-indulgent, like ego trip, uh, film where it's the same writer, director, star uh-huh. who also oh, you worked a song in too that you wrote oh, that's great, uh, but then there's a sex scene and and so like a, a woman like you know gets naked and they're just like not for this no 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 and and it's and that's that's what it feels like is like you can have especially from a humor standpoint like you can do ever you can. You can do whatever kind of joke that you want. I'm fine with that. But at the same time, like, there are some jokes that are more incendiary than others. And if you're making a facile comedy like yeah. Little, like, yeah, you know.
0: Yeah, I, I feel like things, uh, similar topics have come up uh, around the depiction of rape in movies and TV sure. shows in recent years. Of uh, being like, I don't think anyone is coming out and saying no movie or TV show should ever depict a rape. Right what they're saying is so often it's used as just like a, just a narrative turn like any other, you know? Um, and that was something, um, uh, in making Hannibal, Brian Fuller, um, talked about like he, he never wanted to do any sexual crimes or murders on Hannibal because he, Felt like you can't just do that and then not devote a lot of time to right. that, and so, um, uh, and it was it was just interesting. I, the reason I remember that is because I saw I can't remember if it was right before, or right after, but at Comic Con one year there was a handle panel, uh, panel, yeah, and then either right before, or right after, there was the Outlander panel, mm-hmm. and the so the end of the first season of Outlander. There's a scene where the villain, um, played by Tobias Menzies. Uh, rapes the male lead played by Sam Hewen hmm. and then the second episode is completely devoted to his physical and mental yeah re- the, re- the repercussions yeah, of that like and I was like wow Brian Fuller said this thing and then the Outlander
1: people showed this is how you do it and even a show as ridiculous as Oz um, oh right which you know takes place in a prison so there are multiple like prison rape scenes and some of them are treated in kind of a more not funny but uh, treated not very seriously but in other instances you have a character who is rather brutally raped and it is sort of and he's kind of a negative character but then we actually see him in like a support group yeah. in the prison talking yeah. about that and you realize like oh okay alright I remember it's just re- so just recently uh, I'm sure we talked
0: about it at some point but Luke Perry passed away yeah. Um, and in reading like a website or magazine like obituary of him uh, and some of his more notable roles they wrote about his role on Oz and there was just forgot about but there was just a description of what happened to him on Oz and it's in (laughs) the middle of this obituary for late actor and I was like this show could be really stupid (laughs) oh (laughs) it was uh, tremendously so he shows up as a like a um, televangelist type I think that was in jail for embezzling I can't remember what he went to prison for and then he ended up getting Essentially buried away like walled up in the wall alive. Yeah. but then an explosion due to some other storyline mm. freed him before he died. Yeah he was free and then he got walled up in a wall alive again, and that's how he died. <laughs>
1: Yeah, (laughs) just like, are you just like treading water here, (laughs) uh, Tom Fontana?
0: Uh, Anyway, uh, that was too long for two movies. What did you watch? Uh,
1: I watched Roxanne Dawson's Breakthrough, which is a Christian film. Um, You can read my review on the website. Uh, It's a film that, you know, uh, we're on Rotten Tomatoes, and so I had to... Designated something, and so I I opted oh, to designate right. it fresh, uh, simply because. I'm glad you did. Yeah, I mean it's it's not that great of a movie though when it comes right down to it, and I'm convinced that a non-Christian audience would have no patience for it. Um, I myself had very little patience for it, but. You know i i'm I'm genuinely committed to approaching Christian film as its own genre albeit one that is still evolving and emerging right uh, um, and so within that it's doing all the stuff that it's that these types of films do and it's doing it better than the other ones uh, it has a really solid cast many of whom like find really good moments to to latch on to um, and so from a filmmaking standpoint, like the cinematography is just completely flat and boring. Uh, the, the writing is a little bit too broad at times by a little, I mean a lot. Um, but the perform, but the, the actors really find the core to the, their characters. And I think do a good job with it. But also there's a thing that I really, really liked. So this story is based on a true story. It happened in 2015 and it's this kid. He, he falls through, um, falls through the ice and is underwater for like 15 to 20 minutes. Like, wow. Yeah. So they, they find him, they get him out, and they take him to the emergency room, and he's essentially dead. Like, yeah. nothing is happening. They're trying to revive him. And then his his they let his mom in to essentially just be with the body, at which point she prays over him, his heart starts beating, and so then he's in a coma for a while, comes out, no brain damage at all. So, you know, it's all about miracles and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. We've seen... There, there are plenty of Christian movies like this. Here's what I like. So the kid comes out, you know, it's no spoilers or anything. He comes out of the coma. He's fine. And the whole, his whole community has been like praying over him and all that. He goes back to school and he has an encounter with a, a teacher who, Who she's not upset with him or anything like that, but she asks him, you know, because she clearly feels like he probably has some kind of insight into things, and she mentioned that her husband had passed away like two years before, and then he he goes to his locker and there's all these like sticky notes of, of, uh, support. You know, it's like, we love you and blah, blah, blah. And then he scroll, he, he doesn't scroll down. He scans down. <laughs> he <tilts> down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and there's a note that says, uh, like, why Why are you so lucky and my mom is still dying? And what I like, so it suggests this, a very yeah. real question yeah, in the Christian the, community. Honestly,
0: when you described the plot, it was the first yeah,
1: thing I thought of. Exactly. And it's, and it's this idea that, yeah, uh, there's no guarantee that, that you're going to be healed or that things are going to go great for you. Um, and there. they're, there doesn't see there's not always an explanation for that and so like i said well, this, the idea this that if
0: if you believe miracles do happen mm-hmm. then you have to also believe that miracles don't happen
1: for most people exactly um and so like and what's more is you can you can look in your life and find when things have gone well for you in a way that was beyond your own control, and things when they have not. Uh, and be thankful for the times when they have, and be mournful for when they haven't. And so, but here's the thing, is that, so like I said, the story took place in 2015. If they had made this film in 2016, they would not have included that. Because I, I'd see, I saw Miracles from Heaven, and Heaven is for Real, two stories that are very similar, They were made I think in 2014, 2015. And that was at a time in when Christian. You say they is it is just, any of the same creative team as Miracles no, in Heaven? Not that or? I'm not. It not that I'm a, Miracles from Heaven no. and Heaven is for real? Those are two different. Oh, things. Oh, right, I Heaven is for real. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's funny. Yeah, a kid says it, so they that's they title it that. So yeah. It's like okay, well, it does sound like a kid saying it. Um, yeah, but uh, what if? So there's just dog Kevin, <laughs> dog heaven,
0: cat heaven. Sure. Is there a heaven that's for eels?
1: <laughs> that's, I mean,
0: that's what the kid was saying. You know
1: what I'm saying? <laughs> that would explain a weird tangent in the film for about 20 minutes. Um, so, but no, it's just, the thi- that's the thing is like, no there, there, there hasn't there isn't a similar there isn't the same creative team or anything like that so when okay. i say they i just mean christian filmmakers uh and i don't mean to suggest that they're all of one mind but at the same time again you will look at these films and they're all very similar okay. from one to the next and so i do genuinely believe that like christian film only a few years ago was just about if you'll pardon me selling it was just about right. let's sell this we're gonna sell these miracles and all that um And I don't think it would have included this little bit of nuance. And the fact that it's there now, I appreciated and was not expecting. And I was very excited for it.
0: I mean, this is all of a piece of your talking about Christian film as a genre. Because even though it isn't the same creative team, these movies are in conversation with one another or part of an ongoing
1: conversation. Absolutely. I do think, I I honestly think that they included this as a response to people's criticisms of those earlier movies you know mm-hmm. you said like as the first place your mind went plenty of critics have said that about miracles from heaven and, and those other films mm-hmm. and so i do think that this is trying to approach that not merely in a defensive way but also addressing the fact that like yeah also it's not just uh, a non-christian audience that's going to have a problem with that i myself often have had a problem with that and so like sort of addressing that and not Not half-assing an an easy answer either, Mm -hmm. I appreciate. So it's not, again, it's not that great of a film, but it's the reason I rated it fresh is because, like, it's a step in the right direction, and I'll I'll take what I can get.
0: All right. Well, the next movie that I watched is not a Christian film, but it is a film people are very, have been very uh, devoted to following. Okay. For a long time. Okay. From a director that people are very. Fanatical about okay anyway i can't uh belabor this uh i've already run out of steam okay uh i saw at long last terry gilliams the man who killed don quixote mm-hmm. um and i was you know trepidatious going in like i know this is he's not i was like well he's not working with the budget he would have been working with if he had been able to finish this film back in what was it 2000
1: uh it was around there yeah um, when did that documentary come out? Like 2002? I think that was two thousand two. Yeah,
0: yeah. Okay. So, um, uh, and for those if we have younger listeners or uh, people who aren't Terry Gilliam fanatics, Terry Gilliam has been trying to make the man who killed Don Quixote for at least twenty years, probably before that. But he almost made it in, let's say, the year two thousand with Johnny Depp and uh, Jean Rochefort, um, and the production was. So disastrous that it was essentially over before it started. They mm. lost all their money. They weren't able to make the movie, even though Jean Rochefort like learned to speak English for the movie, <laughs> um, uh, and that's all documented in a documentary uh, called Lost in La Mancha. Anyway, so finally he has made the movie. I was I was trepidatious because it's a you know it's a smaller budget. It's twenty years later, and also conventional wisdom would tell you that Terra Gilliam now is not a Terra Gilliam he was sure. And I don't know because I haven't seen a Terry Gilliam movie in 20 years, Mm -hmm. but now I want to go watch all of them. Cause the man who killed Don Quixote is great. Uh, it really feels like Terry Gilliam, uh, just do on the one hand doing his Terry Gilliam thing, but also being more introspective than I am used to him being because the movie is about a filmmaker who has the initials TG. It's Toby, something Italian mm. uh this was the Johnny Depp role now played by Adam Driver which to me is a trade-up um and then uh, certainly from an introspection standpoint yeah. I think and then you've got uh, in the role of the late Jean Rochefort you've got Jonathan Price who of course mm. uh has been working with Terry you know worked with Terry Gilliam in Brazil mm. uh 30 years ago or 34 30, years ago four years ago um and then you've also got um uh Stellan Skarsgard as I guess the I guess you'd call him the villain or one of the villains. Um there's a bigger villain who shows up later. Um the only time that Terry Gilliam gets I think very on the nose is a part where there's a Russian villain who shows up later who's uh described as being impulsive and childlike and Stellin Skarsgard's character who is an asshole himself says uh think of him like uh Like a toddler throwing a tantrum, or like fucking Trump. That's what he says. (laughs) It's very on the nose, but also. I don't know, not not wrong, I guess, uh, yeah. about Trump, but it, uh, it felt weird because I would, I guess, I was in my headspace of being like, this is a script that he's had for twenty five uh, years. Uh, right? Obviously, he did some little brush ups.
1: That's the one. Uh, they just it was, it's this, it's been the same for thirty years. Yeah. Well, there's like, also
0: there's a DVD where there probably would have been a VHS twenty five yeah. years ago or so. Um, but the premise is that Adam Driver plays a director who's a very successful. Um, kind of the egotistical commercial director. He makes mm. literally commercials. And so he's in Spain making a commercial that is, and I don't remember if they say what the product is, but he's making a commercial that is sort of inspired by the Don Quixote uh, legend. And um, it turns out that a little over a decade before, his graduate thesis film was a short film adaptation of Don Quixote that he had made in the same part of Spain that he's now in. So during this sort of um, downtime on set or downtime that he essentially manufactures because he's a like egotistical tyrant. Um, he goes to the small town where he shot this movie when he was a young, you know, idealistic nobody uh, to check in on his old friends. And it turns out that this, his production has had a, a that short film made his career but has had a very deleterious effect on the townspeople the guy who played sancho is dead Mm -hmm. the girl who played the sort of young uh uh she's supposed to be like the vision of pure beauty or whatever Mm -hmm. decided to go into acting and ended up going into more escort work Mm -hmm. um and then jonathan price who plays a cobbler who was hired to play don quixote essentially lost his mind and now thinks he's don quixote um and so uh adam driver gets sort of ends up getting wrapped up in this fake don quixote's quixote's adventures um and one of the great ongoing sort of running gags of the movie is that you keep thinking like oh they're getting into some real magical realism here like obviously there's some things here that aren't really happening. Maybe Toby is like sharing this guy's vision and you realize like, Oh no, that's all. That's all. Real. It keeps like pulling the curtain back and being like, no, it seems weird, but this is actually a real thing that's really happening. That mm-hmm. keeps happening. There are, there are a couple of magic realist things that end up happening, but, um, uh, the uh, anyway, the movie is, uh, very, it's, yeah, some of the cheapness shows up in the in, in the the rare uh, visual effect, like CG effects. Right. Most of the effects are practical and look great. Um, uh, but the, but it's Terry Gilliam being self aware about the ethics of being a director, of being in charge of uh, <laughs> of everyone, and, and sort of dictating, at least for your little time of their life, dictating how people's lives go, mm-hmm. um, which is surprisingly. I never thought that these two movies would have anything in common before seeing both of them, but it's a lot of the same ground. that Robert Zemeckis has covered with Welcome to Marwen last year, mm. which is a movie that I think some people overpraised as a reaction to the way that it was panned. Sure. Because, yeah, I think I've talked about this before, but like Welcome to Marwen on the one hand has way more going on than most of the facile dismissals mm-hmm. you read in the, in the negative movie reviews. But on the other hand, it's still pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> and so I feel like people overpraised it. And I, I, um, am not seeing the same level of praise for the man who killed Don Quixote. And un- un- unfortunately, I know, I mean, I'd, I know some people who liked it and those people have hated it, but, um, it really makes me want to go back and watch Tide Land, the Brothers Grimm, the imaginary name of Dr. Parnassus. Yeah. There's another one that I'm missing, uh, that he made since fear and look, excuse me, since fear and loathing. Yeah. um, But that's it. Uh, You say what
1: you're going to say next, and I'll figure out what that other movie is. Okay. Uh, So, yeah, this is a a rewatch for me, a film I haven't seen in a while. I watched it in my uh, world cinema class, Um, and it is uh, R.W. Fassbender's Ali Fear Eats the Soul, which is one of my favorite films, Um, but I haven't seen it in a while, and... The Zero Theorem. That's right. Yes. Uh, with Christoph Waltz, which I'd heard only so so things about, honestly. Um, and I heard Tideland was just terrible. But at the same time, like, Terry Gilliam is kind of a divisive filmmaker. Like, it's rare for him to f- f- put out any film that's, like, universally praised. And even, yeah. even Brazil well, was not loved. I
0: remember one of the big, because uh, I didn't see Tideland either, one of the big criticisms is just how, like, sort of nasty and misanthropic it is. And I'm like, that's terrible. I know you think that he's like, oh, Baron Munchausen and, like, time yeah. Bandits and Holy Grail. Like, you think he's this, like, fun fantasist, but he's yeah. always been a misanthrope. Yeah. Going oh, back- his whimsy is <laughs> still nightmare-inducing. Yeah. yeah and Don Man-, Man Who Killed Don Quixote has plenty of that. It's a okay. very nasty movie in some in some, way, in some ways. Sorry. Go on. You watched uh, Ali, Ali Furious the Soul, which I've uh, never seen
1: Oh really? Oh man! I know, right? I, yeah, I think you would love it. Um, and my my students uh, really really responded to it. It's a film that you know it's it's inspired uh, in no small part by like the the work of Douglas Sirk, but I would say tonally it doesn't necessarily try to emulate that. Like that it's, it's inherently melodramatic, but he plays it pretty straight. And I think it's a it's a film that has uh, become you know, almost every great film you wait long, it's probably relevant to the time in which it was made and give it enough time and it'll be, it will become relevant again. And Ali furious, the soul definitely qualifies, um, because it is about this, uh, older woman who's a, a widow and she comes across this younger man who is, uh, it, this is, it takes place in Germany. Um, and he is, I believe, Egyptian. At a time in Germany where uh, there are a number of like Egyptian immigrants who were not trusted by by uh, the locals, and so she, she and this man, they see like. A kindred spirit in the other person so they in, get involved in a, in a romance um, much to the chagrin of the, the people around her but for a few reasons. The one that they cite most specifically is that, like I can't believe that you're in a relationship with this guy, this Egyptian guy um, but I do think that there's actually an unspoken uh, for lack of a better term, revulsion which is like you're too old to get to be in a relationship like we, we aren't, we don't think of you this way. Cause this is a, an older woman who's probably in her, I'd say mid to late sixties. Um, I might be wrong about that. It might mm-hmm. be like early sixties, but the way that people, th- they're first confused and then they're frustrated and then they're angry. And it's just like, not only is there the racial element, but I think there's an ageist element and just this idea. It's like, no, no, no. These are people that we don't think of as full blooded people really at mm. all and that's probably one of the reasons that they found each other um and but we don't we don't want to engage with them in this way and so uh, but what I really like is that even within that, it doesn't. The film does not make her or the Egyptian guy uh, 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 full on martyrs. Like they are both deeply flawed characters who are not necessarily perfect for each other, and both can be extremely selfish at the same time. It's just a really marvelous film that seems so simple and yet is tremendous, it, and it is. In many ways, like when I think of it, I think about it, I think of it as a pretty straightforward, simple film. But when, but every time I watch it, in the choices the actors make, in the in the character beats, I realize just how complex the movie is, and I, I absolutely love it. And I was thrilled that my that my students liked it as well.
0: All right, um, <clears throat> I watched a movie that uh, I didn't know much about going in. Um, sorry. Um, okay it comes out uh, later this spring and I basically the only thing I knew about it is the young woman who stars in it is an actress named Jesse Buckley who was in a movie this past year called Beast that was uh, underseen but that I loved Mm -hmm. and so and I was like and I loved it largely because of how great her performance was in it so I was like I'm seeing this I don't know what it's about Uh, it's called Wild Rose on the one hand it couldn't be more different from Beast on the other hand I still loved it okay Wild Rose is a movie about a young woman from Glasgow, Scotland, who wants to move to Nashville and be a country singer. Okay. She's a country fanatic. Um, And it's, on the one hand, when you look at the, if I were to just lay out the major plot points about her like disapproving mom and like the chance she, you know, the chances she did land in the lap, and it would sound like a various sort of like, you know, live action Disney, you're made for TV movie type of like feel which is not necessarily, those are fun sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, when they're well made. Uh, and it, on the one hand, it absolutely is that kind of sort of like uh, urban modern day, like rags to rich. Actually, it's not rags to I don't want to give away spoilers, but it does have that, 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 that sort of narrative structure, but it's also so well executed and also so much more, uh, uh naturalistic and I guess down to earth and R rated than mm-hmm. you would expect. Cause she's it's not just that she um uh w- wants to um to to be a country star. She also at the very beginning of the movie she um is being released from prison because she spent a year in prison for trying to smuggle drugs into prison for other people (laughs) and got caught and locked up. She gets out. She has two kids. Um, I don't think we even know where their father is. That's Mm -hmm. not that's on him, not on her, but she's not a good mom. She is uh, an alcoholic um, (laughs) and she's a very selfish person who also has this very sort of because she's had a hard life, this very sort of har- hard earned bitterness that comes across, uh, uh, pretty funny mm-hmm. uh, in, in like a dark way. There's a part, cause then she ends up getting a job as a, as a maid or as I, I guess apparently they say in Scotland, a daily woman, like a woman who shows up every okay. day and cleans your house. And so there's a part that the, the rich family that she's, uh, uh, cleaning the house of the, the, the mother is a sort of, like, in many ways, kind of the um, stereotype of, like, this sort of bored housewife dilettante who decides, mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm gonna help you in your career. And we never know for sure, like, is this genuine? Does she actually think she's good? Or is this just, like, something for this rich lady to do? <laughs> and does that really matter? Uh, but then there's another part where the the husband, the father of the uh, the patriarch of this rich family sort of, like, corners the maid, and you having seen movies and knowing about what happens in real life too yeah, yeah. and stuff like that. Like you have an idea of what's going to happen. And so does she, and she just sort of like scoffs and rolls her eyes and says, Oh, is this the one where you try to stick it up? The daily woman. Yeah. <laughs> it's weirdly like funny, yeah. but also like, uh, horrible at the same time. Yeah. And like the fact that all of this is happening in this movie that is, has such a feel good premise. Yeah. I think, um, uh, makes it all the more worthwhile. I think there's something about, like... Because, you know, it's it's weird that we just talked about country music movies with with our friend Josh on a recent episode, and uh, so often they're... And I like these movies, but you think about things like, you know, Crazy Heart or whatever, like, Mm -hmm. they're about, like, oh, the country music life, the life that leads someone to want to write and sing songs like this is a hard life mm-hmm. and yeah it is that's exactly i mean like she has so much in common with the 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 people the lower rung people in america making the music that she that she loves but that doesn't mean her story can't be a good one not everyone not not everyone who represents a uh marginalized or 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 downtrodden Demographic yeah. has to remain that for the whole movie. That's usually yeah. like that. That's the kind of like um, uh, uh, self-congratulatory, liberal, moralizing you get from so many movies. Yeah, of being like, oh, I'm you know people people who align with me politically often, but are often uh, you get the impression they're like, oh, I'm doing my homework by going to see this movie about how hard this person's life right. is, and it's like, why can't? if you were making the movie for that person, why can't it be aspirational? Why yeah. can't she have some hope? But I'm not saying whether or not she makes it as a big country star in the movie. Um, I think the movie handles that well and realistically as well. But, um, it's a really terrific, fun, uh, movie. That's also darkly funny and sometimes very upsetting. And this Jesse Buckley, she is one to watch hmm. between beast and this. I cannot wait to see what she's, what she does next.
1: You know, it's interesting. Um, a concept that tends to bother me and one that I've realized is more pervasive and sometimes more covert is the idea of the noble savage. Okay. Um, which I don't know if people are trying to break into this futuristic car or what, but, uh, before it was a a motorcycle drove by and set off this alarm, but, uh, I don't know. Did somebody hit snooze? (laughs) on the alarm. But anyway, uh, but the idea of, of, well, we have, we have like, <laughs> it sounds so much like a video game. It's very yep. distracting. I, I'm distracted easily anyway, but Finish <laughs> 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 what mortal combat are you playing? <laughs> I didn't say I've
0: played mortal combat. Fair know enough. What, uh, this came up recently. Um, I was talking with a friend of the show, Patrick Starr. Hmm going way back a long time ago he doesn't even live in los angeles anymore um but yeah uh yeah people long time listeners might remember patrick he was on once but anyway he's a friend of mine and when i one of the first times i met him my ex-girlfriend and i were having a fourth of july party and he <laughs> came over and brought his wii and people were playing like Wii bowling right this is i think i was there oh okay, yeah i think he was yeah Yes, that's right. This was this was been Fourth of July, two thousand eight. I'm pretty sure that's the last time I played a video game, not counting like mm. Angry Birds or something on my phone. Sure, sure. Like an actual like video game console. Yeah, yeah.
1: Eleven years ago, I'm pretty sure that's the last time I played a video game. You're not missing much. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, and so the idea, as you're mentioning, this idea of like, oh, we we want to show like the downtrodden, yeah. you know, and we're going to find the nobility, in that. that's like, okay, that there's that's fine, but in a way, it's almost like. But if they if if the character tries to get themselves out of that and if they successfully do that, there's almost a sad, it's like no no, what well, there's no nobility in that right. now you're just like me you <laughs> right. know, and it's just like yeah. I don't want that i you, you want things yeah is it gross
0: to that uh everyone I know loves that song Common People by Pulp and it's a great structurally it's a great song I I don't know it Uh, I think you'd like it if you heard it but once you think about the lyrics it's a song that is a condemnation of like what do people say like class tourism like Mm -hmm. someone like someone slumming it you know like a rich person slumming it but all the things that he's saying about poor people in the song are just as patronizing as the things that he's accusing the person in the song of doing. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, that's
1: why Disco Two Thousand is risk. the best pulp like, song. What was it?
0: That's why Disco Two Thousand is the best pulp, best, best pop
1: song. Well, not that, common people that I'm not going to argue with you about. <laughs> anyway, um, okay. So Sorry, next, yeah, what did you watch? Next for me, now, David. I'm not looking to to give this a plug but this is part of my intro here. Um I recently put out a book called uh, Cinematic Suffering: Reviews of Terrible Movies. Got my copyright here. That's right. Um and uh listeners can uh, purchase it if they want. It's uh, $15 at morethanonelesson.com. Um and in it uh, it's uh, it's me it's it's called reviews of terrible terrible movies but it doesn't necessarily say bad reviews of terrible movies um it's me often trying to find the positive in a movie that i don't like or liking movies that i recognize i maybe shouldn't as far as the <laughs> official you know the official uh, story um so, uh, I recently put it out, and what I will say is that. Wait, are you to, talking
0: about the 1985 Argentinian film, The Official Story? Yes. Is that
1: what you watched? Yes. I okay. devoted an entire chapter <laughs> to how much I like that movie. Physically. Um, but uh, is that. Who directed that? I don't remember who made that. Okay. Um, so, here's what I'll say So, having put out that book, I'm so angry that i had not seen dominic senna's california with a k with a k before putting the book together because i absolutely would have included it and it would have been in it would have been one of the rare reviews in the book that is almost wholly negative um have you seen california with a k no i've never seen it Ugh, ugh. it's just it's What's frustrating is that there is so much talent involved. It's a beautifully shot film. It features a an unfortunately unmemorable score by uh, Carter Burwell. It's got a great cast, including Brad Pitt, Juliette Lewis, Michelle Forbes, David Duchovny. Um, and yet it is... It's so... Imagine if the... Okay, I know that he's a character in a movie. Imagine Kevin Klein in A Fish Called Wanda was a movie, okay? (laughs) Like, he's so... It's like, oh, apes don't read philosophy. Yes, they do, Otto. They just don't understand it, okay? That's what it is. This is a film that has read philosophy. This is a film that has seen all the great noir. This is a film that, that wants to deal with deep concepts, but has no fucking idea how. And it is so dumb and so <laughs> and so misanthropic in a way that I don't think it even realizes it is like it's not in a hip way or in aware uh, a self-aware way it's it just hates all of its characters without quite realizing it and i just like the first the first sequence of the film i was just like all right this is interesting and then the film just goes off the rails and i f- i feel bad that like I just don't think I'm a fan of Brad Pitt at this time in his career. Cause okay. he's, this is right before 12 monkeys. was right before 12 monkeys okay. where, but it's that same instinct where 12 monkeys is a Terry Gilliam film. It's heightened. So I think his performance his over the top. Crazy performance is a little bit more understandable. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this, he plays like this Southern guy who's also a psychopath. And just in case you're a little iffy on the type of character he is, he's got a Confederate flag on his hat, Okay, you know, and he's got this beard and he just, and just I see all these affectations that Brad Pitt right, is doing and yeah. it just feels like he's trying so hard like when he's effortless there's nobody better
0: yeah I've come to like him quite a bit but yeah, yeah. I definitely know that that transition of him rough uh, yeah um, and wait, it's a, they, so it's uh, a it's like a, a Badlands type of like road trip, do they kill people?
1: Yeah. It's so Juliet it, Lewis made California and natural born killers in like, like yeah, back to back. Yeah. And natural born killers, which, you know, I'm not a big fan of, yeah. but I at least feel like Oliver Stone had a much clearer idea of what he was trying to do. And mm-hmm. I guess that's not surprising compared to Dominic Senna, but, um, yeah it's and juliet lewis like her character is kind of a simple minded person and she's sympathetic but at the same time very frustrating and it's just yeah man it is a mess of a movie and i'm uh i felt gross afterwards um all right
0: so i'm gonna move on and i'm gonna i'm gonna reference a conversation you and i just had off off mic okay because i was saying that generally if i watch a movie for the express purposes of discussing it on the main podcast I right. don't include it in the movie journal but except that's exactly what I'm going to do here but you're going to break your one rule I'm not I see this is the thing my rules are so arcane that I'm not actually breaking my rule okay. here. but I couldn't quite uh what sort of uh, I couldn't quite articulate okay why this doesn't fall into that okay um but anyway I watched a movie 19, oh, shit. I should have looked this up. 1976. Oh, wait. Well, real quick. The official story was directed by Luis Puenza. Okay. Puenzo. It is Argentinian. Came out in 1985. I don't know anything else he's directed um, except the last movie he directed in 2004 is called The Whore and the Whale, which sounds like the porn parody of The Squid <laughs> and the Whale.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and like, a particularly not, uh, not a very clever one either. She's like, yeah. just... Replace squid with whore.
0: Well, I, I swear to God, when I worked at a porn video store, we had a movie come out called the sex matrix,
1: <laughs> <laughs> not sex men or anything like that. They're yeah. just like, just put sex in it. It's fine. Who's yeah. got the time? Yeah. Yeah.
0: I always, felt, yeah. Some of them, um, <laughs> uh, usually the gay porn ones had better titles. Sure. Uh, because it would like the gay, the straight ones would be like "sweet Ho Alabama" or whatever. Well, but gay porn had well the "sweet homo
1: Alabama." Oh, there we go. Okay,
0: but the gay ones also had a beautiful behind. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dawson's crack. Okay, uh, everybody does Raymond. <laughs>
1: Uh, (laughs) I'm sure there were more Oddly enough featuring Ray Romano He was in it He was like well I gotta uh, Yeah when I worked at Video Update We did have a porn section And there was I'm sure I've said this on the show But it's been a long time Um, On the cover was a naked woman But she was in a trench coat and a fedora And like holding up uh, a magnifying glass Clearly she'd never held one before (laughs) And it was Uh called Vagina Town Uh And I was like so Okay (laughs) I don't know how much of a parody of Chinatown this is, yeah. but they do know enough to have her be a detective. <laughs> I don't know. It was uh, very funny to me. All right. So I watched the
0: 1976 documentary, uh, a Spanish documentary. That the official story mm. is a movie that's in Spanish because it's Argentinian. Got this it. is a Spanish movie and that it's from Spain. Uh, it is called, it's a documentary called The Disenchantment or El Desencanto. Okay. And um, we'll be talking about it on uh, in a coming episode of the podcast uh, in more detail. But this is, from what I understand, in Spain, this is kind of a cult documentary along the lines of a Grey Gardens. Okay. Because it's about the family of a noted poet named uh, Leopoldo Pinero, who, I, uh, who um, was very successful uh, and also had very close ties to the Francisco Franco regime. and his family enjoyed the benefits of his wealth and of his favor of this you know uh, totalitarian leader mm-hmm. uh, this dictator. Um, and the movie is just a series of interviews or conversations like that not even you don't really you don't hear the director the director's name is Jaime Jaime Chivari. um, you don't hear the director not, not an interview in that sense but conversations between or betw- between members of the family or between the camera it's the the widow and their four their three sons um, and at no point like they're they're there's different pairings and at no point are all four of them on screen together um, and um, they are all drunks they're also all writers they've also gone on to be writers mm. or in the case of the widow was a writer when she met her husband, her husband sort of forced her into being just like a, to being the domestic, you know, just the domestic role and sort of discouraged her writing. So it's this family of alcoholic writers who also in sort of, um, I mentioned the squid and the whale, but sort of that, that type of like that type of character you see a lot, the very, the, Wealthy characters who are very self-aware of their own faults, but sure. not in a way that they intend to do anything about it. Uh, right, it's as the though the awareness is enough. And they, yeah, and and they obviously have deep-seated, deep, deep-seated emotional scars and and uh, wounds b- um, between family members. But they're they're rich people. It would be. It would be uh, uncouth to yell at each other about it. So they have conversations about just them doing awful things to each other or how, like, how terrible a mother, like, basically just like, like a guy tell, like, I'm talking to you just telling his mother, like, well, you were awful because you did this and this. And she's just like, yeah, well, uh, here's what I feel about that. It's. So it's darkly very funny. Does the uh, film
1: end with them snapping and saying, the aristocrats? <laughs>
0: uh, but it's all these interviews around the occasion of, uh, I, I think it's like 10 years after Leopold Panero Pinero died, um, and in the town of Agrosta, Spain? I can't remember the name of the town um, where, he, where he lived, where they all live. They're dedicating a statue. So that's mm-hmm. sort of the impetus, but it doesn't really get much into that. Um, there's also, there's a very darkly funny part where the, the oldest uh, son is just giving the camera the documentary uh, an inventory of all the things he always keeps on his person. She's like, I always keep a book of poems by Borges. Bor uh, Boris, uh, B- I can, I don't know. Yeah. B O R G S Borges. Yeah. Borges. Uh, he's like, I keep this knife and he's like, can I keep, um, <laughs> is he, he, has a switchblade. I, he's like, I always carry the switchblade with me. It saved my life twice. He doesn't comment any further on that. Uh, <laughs> and then he's like, and here's some photos of people he looks up to. And one is uh, I keep this f- photo of f. Scott, f. Scott, f. Scott Fitzgerald because he was an alcoholic like myself and he had a horrible wife like myself. <laughs> 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 um, uh, so the movie's very, I, you can see why it's a cult documentary because it's not like overtly comedic. Yeah. It's actually often very dark and upsetting oh there's a story about puppies it's not good yeah. um uh but it's also kind of almost really funny and also i think not that i'm not most of what i know of the franco regime comes <coughs> from movies about it sure but um i think it is the fact that the movie was made yes it's the 10 year anniversary of The death of Leopoldo Pinero, but it was also made right after the death of Francisco Franco, Mm -hmm. right as Spain was transitioning back into being a democracy, Mm -hmm. and these people who had, for decades, for a couple generations, had benefited from... Living under, living in the favor of a dictator, are suddenly at sea. Hmm. Not just because their their patriarch is gone, but because their patron, in a way, yeah. is gone. So I think it, the movie uh, probably ha- probably speaks more to Spanish people than to me or people who know a lot about the Spanish hmm. Civil War and and the Franco regime and uh, uh, and the 1970s in Spain. I I can't speak to that, but I think the movie has a lot going on. Um, Anyway, we'll be talking about it in the upcoming weeks on the podcast, and you'll get more information about how to see it. Right now, it's pretty difficult to see it. It had never, until until earlier this spring, it had never played in the United States. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, now it's sort of touring around. I know here in Los Angeles, it's playing, I think, uh, it's, UCLA is going to be showing it on their campus. Uh, go Bruins. Uh, Damn right. Um, uh, and there might be another... Uh, I have to figure out At the time of the recording. I don't know if there's another LA screening planned. I heard there was. Mm-hmm. Well,
1: you'll hear about it more in a couple of weeks on the podcast. Anyway, that's uh, El Desencanto. It sounds like it'd be part of a good like triple feature with The Queen of Versailles and General Idi Amin Dada.
0: But, <laughs> <just> <laughs> but I said, did I mention Grey Gardens? And Grey Gar- yeah, yeah, it has true. more yeah, of yeah. a Grey Gardens okay. reputation,
1: I think. Yeah. All right, so my next film is one that is not necessarily easy to find. Uh, I watched on faith life TV, which is a streaming service where people can find my, uh, nine part series faith and filmmaking. Um, so this is a documentary called I survived. I kissed dating goodbye. Kind of a clunky title. Yeah. Uh, here's what I'll say. The death of Superman lives. What happened? What what happened? (laughs) Um, Feel bad because that director passed away. Um, all right. So, uh, growing up uh, in, in the church, I, I've said this before that I feel like I'm very fortunate that I dodged a lot of Christian culture bullets. I, my family was very movie, uh, movie positive, one could say. Okay. Um, and the other thing is, there is a book, uh, that like came out just in time for me to be a teenager and it was called i kiss dating goodbye it was written by a guy named josh harris and it was essentially the idea and i never read it and i was never made to read it but plenty of of like parents had their kids read it and like plenty of people in like my youth group had read it and it's essentially just this idea of sort of rethinking the idea of dating and trying to do it in a more intentional and purposeful way it's like okay yeah that's fine but as often happens with any book that uh, is very popular um, and gains a certain following, is it it kind of becomes uh, the, the Bible uh, for some people. And so, and I had been hearing about Josh Harris and I Kissed Dating Goodbye for years. Never felt the desire to read it. Still haven't. Um, so. Uh, a couple years ago, I had read, I had seen a few articles about how Joshua Harris was now apologizing for that book, and I was like, oh, interesting, and so now there's this documentary called I Survived, I Kissed, Dating, Goodbye. Once again, I feel like there's a better way to, to phrase that, but Holistic
0: anyway. Holistic X versus Seven.
1: <laughs> uh, so it's directed by Jessica van der Wingard, um, which sounds like the richest person in the world. <laughs> uh, so, right. Like, can we get yeah. a few more three letter things? Yeah. Um, <laughs> how, yeah, how big a hat does she wear? <laughs> she, yeah. uh, obviously she's a baroness. Yeah. Um, so uh, in this documentary, um, she interviews Joshua Harris, who he wrote that book when he was 21. He is now in his forties, married, has children. And he, <laughs> he came to realize over the years that his book wound up being used for something he never intended it to be. He intended it to be more like, this is a personal philosophy, a personal statement on my part. And even then he's just like, I was 21. What, why was I writing personal statements? <laughs> um, and, but it, it is a book as, again, as tends to happen in the Christian church. Um, some people had over the years had like said the way the book had been misused at them. Uh and I think one of them was this woman uh this filmmaker uh, Jessica Jessica Vanderwintergarden <laughs> I feel bad it's not her fault that's her name um but <laughs> oh. Oh, good Lord. She's obviously a big fan, a big, uh, yeah. you know, her family's friends with the Von Bulows. Um, <laughs> and they stand by Klaus. Uh, anyway, so <laughs> what, what can I say now at this point? So ultimately, so the film is about him rethinking his book and then also having conversations with people that did not either did not like his book or, or were negatively impacted by his book. And so it's always nice when someone is open to hearing criticism from, from other people. But then also they use, uh, this to talk about the, the attitudes about sex, marriage, and dating that you found in the, in the Protestant, the American Protestant church in the nineties. Um, and it's just so fascinating. And I think it's very objective without ever, ever actually like, bashing this stuff it doesn't say like ah we're all atheists now and that's that's <laughs> as it should be it's not that it is a genuine introspective um reflection on this culture and it's a culture that i was very aware of growing up in but was i'm again i'm very lucky that i did not read yeah. this book and that i was not heavily pressured by my parents or even by in retrospect thinking about my youth pastor like he didn't require us to to read the book or anything like that, and um, so I'm I feel like I dodged that bullet. But in watching it, it's just it's an interesting portrait of a culture that that I, I'd be fascinated to know what you would. Yeah, think I was going to say, remind how this can be watched. You can watch it through Faith Life TV, right. which is a streaming service like five bucks a month. Um, and there's some uh, aside from my my show faith and uh-huh. uh, filmmaking right um there's some there's some interesting stuff on there but i feel like that one especially like you know what if you want to get the uh, if you want to get your first i i think you can get like two weeks for free so like you can you can subscribe to it watch this watch documentary because it is interesting Tyler stuff. watch my thing yeah. uh and uh, and then you can unsubscribe but it's great it's uh i was very happy that i saw it it's it's a pretty well-made film um
0: all right, so there's a movie in here I can't talk about. I'm sorry. No matter how much you pressure me, I'm under embargo. I can't talk about this movie, so I'll just skip on to the next one. <laughs> and that's um, <laughs> I don't like this character <laughs> at all. Uh, I haven't done that in a while. It's been a while. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, so the next thing I'll talk about is Kenneth Branagh's All Is True. Oh, okay. I was um, curious about this. Oh, I don't know why did it, what it is. But I'm always like, oh, Kenneth Branagh made a new movie, and then I watch it. and I'm like, all right, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's kind of so. All is true. Well, here's, I don't think it's that great, but here's why I liked it, because I kept comparing it to Rupert Everett's The Happy Prince, mm. and it's so much better than that. Okay. Whereas The Happy Prince is about the latter years of Oscar Wilde's life, all is true is about retired William Shakespeare. Yeah. Uh, Kenneth Branagh, um, with the with prosthetic, I didn't even recognize him at first, mm-hmm. uh, prosthetic face and everything, plays... Um, plays William Shakespeare who has just moved back the the um, during, a, I guess in the middle of a performance, I guess this is, I don't know I'm not a Shakespeare historian, but I guess in the middle of the performance of Henry the eighth, which I think, uh, the theater caught fire and burned down. Oh my. And so he just like, was like, eh, you know what? Oh, <laughs> uh, the globe theater is gone. Uh, I'll hang it up. Yeah. Um, so he moves back to Stratford, upon Avon and, um, Judy Dench plays his, his wife who is, which is, I guess, factually accurate that his wife was older, uh, mm-hmm. than he was. And then he has, uh, two daughters and a, he had a son who died when he was mm-hmm. like 11 the twin brother mm-hmm. of one of the two daughters um and so it's just about sort of his uh attempts to sort of take back control of his life as a family man uh, among a family that has mostly been getting along without him while he's been in london uh being the most famous writer in you know in the history of the english language mm-hmm. um uh, and that's actually something that's commented on it. Like uh, unlike so many other artists, like William Shakespeare was appreciated in his own uh, yeah, time, maybe yeah. not in the same way. He was appreciated more as a popular artist, maybe. Right. I don't know. Uh, but um, he was very famous. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some of the townsfolk think he think he's a uh, fancy pants uh, <laughs> and his family is like, you know, who are you to boss us around? And I, and I think that's in again, in the same way, of how I talked about Terry Gilliam and the man who killed Don Quixote, but in the same way that I feel like Rupert Everett wanted to make that story about Oscar Wilde because he feels uh, simpatico with the unappreciated genius mm-hmm. of the late Oscar Wilde in a way that is uh, very pompous sure. and almost unwatchable in The Happy Prince, I think I can't help but see Kenneth Branagh as a film director... Telling, I, I can't help but uh, interpret this as him telling a story of someone who is in their professional life so used to being in control. Not just mm-hmm. of writing the play, but he ran the Globe Theater, you yeah. know. So he was in control of everything, and now he comes back home thinking he's going to like set things in order. You know, he's going to get his youngest daughter married, married off, and he's good, Like, mm-hmm. and he's going to go back to and realizing that in real life he he's no longer in charge of everything. Yeah. Um, so uh yeah that's it's it's definitely a much better movie than the happy prince or whatever that's worth. No. I still think it's a little bit broad and, and and not not too deep, but it gets into some 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 stuff uh about um I'm always fascinated with pictures with portraits of like homosexuality before we talked about Homosexuality in those terms. Sure. Like, you know, I feel like now we're getting to a place where uh, gender and sexuality, are we're recognizing more fluidity, mm. but I feel like in a different way, not in a, maybe in a less progressive way, that happened in the past, too. Like, there's nothing in the movie that suggests that William Shakespeare is not... V- in love with women, Mm -hmm. you know, and attached to women. But there's also stuff that suggests, uh, he is capable of being attracted to men as well. It's Uh, the theater. (laughs)
1: Yeah. And I don't even say that. You know what? I don't even say that jokingly, like in that world and just in the world of the arts in general, there was, there's always been sort of just spoken or unspoken, just kind of an assumption that like, yeah, there's going to, there's going to be a lot of people who aren't, are, are, just div- or just outside kind of, the bound, outside, outside the, the norm. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, I thought that stuff was interesting. I definitely think, you know, you've got Shakespearean actors. You've got Kenneth Branagh. You've got Judi Dench. You've got a, uh, a Bruce McGill Award contender in Ian McKellen. Nice. Um, who shows up as a nobleman like William Shakespeare is rich, but mm-hmm. he's the movie makes clear he's not a nobleman. There are noblemen in the town who look down on him. Ian McKellen is a nobleman who loves his writing is kind of a patron, mm-hmm. uh, but, um, and and it's very fawning over William Shakespeare until it comes to the point where it's like, well, no, you're not my equal. It's yeah. really, it's, a, there's some interesting stuff in there. I feel like I'm talking myself into liking more than I did. It does sound in very interesting, it. but you've got Shakespearean actors, you've got a good, you know, some good florid dialogue. Mm-hmm. It's, it's definitely, there are definitely worse ways to kill an hour and 40 minutes, yeah. but it all, it also has some of that stink of vanity project that happy Prince had just a better one.
1: Hmm. It does sound like he's trying to do stuff with it, though. The idea yeah. of someone who, like you said, normally has control and now in everyday life finds, oh no, I can't control other people the way I can it, actors. Yeah. It sounds like he's trying to actually yeah. m- comment on something there.
0: Yeah, it's definitely not. Uh, it's not a worthless movie. No. <laughs> um but uh, it's also not. Uh, I, I just think, uh, Kenneth, if we get into, because I'm talking about Kenneth Brennan as a writer and actor mostly, if you get into Kenneth Brennan as a director, I always feel like he's got a, he's got a bit of this sort of middle brow journeyman about him. Like, <laughs> yeah, he, that's true. He really surprises me in his choices as a director, yeah. you know, and he
1: directed a Marvel movie yeah I know I forget that sometimes I I don't it's so strange (laughs) I think about it all the time and I liked Cinderella
0: quite a bit as well I forget Uh, that he did Cinderella was great yeah that's true yeah that might be my favorite of his movies but then didn't he also make that Jack Ryan movie Shadow Recruit
1: did he direct that no, I don't even rem- I don't remember. He is. I, I'd, I would describe him as a journeyman insofar as I don't follow him like as a director. Um, yeah, I guess it is always kind of like, oh, I guess he's got a new one. It's not like yeah. I'm like reading the trades and being like, oh, can't wait for the next. Yeah. Um, uh, what am I doing? Like even the directors uh, I don't really like that are sort of auteurs. I still kind I'm of right. know what they're doing. I forgot he did Murder on the Orient Express. Yeah. Oh, Jack- that's right. Jack Ryan shadow recruit. He
0: did a Macbeth in 2013. Is that the one with? uh... Oh, I see. That's a filmed performance. Oh, Okay. Okay. That was released. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Thor. He did the sleuth
1: remake, which I forgot about. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Which was written by like what? Harold Pinter or something like that. I don't remember. Uh, Or someone. Harold Pinter is dead. I thought he was dead maybe okay anyway um okay all right so that's it what's next for you next for me so the next two films or i guess my last two films here um not that i'm going to be talking about them together but they're both films that i watched in my world cinema class uh and uh in both cases films i had not seen in a while uh the first is decalogue one um which which is is uh that oddly enough spoilers, it's the one where the kid falls through the ice and things don't go uh, quite as well yes. uh, as they do in the Christian film breakthrough. Um,
0: yeah. Cause I know I, like I always forget because the Decalogue is loosely based on the 10 commandments, but they're not yeah. in 10 commandments order. So, so Thou shalt that kill is not,
1: is that the first commandment? What's no, the first commandment? First commandment is uh, no other gods before me. Um, oh, and is that what this one is? I think th- is this, this one, one but the computer, yeah yeah that is the, that one is for yeah for me that's right yeah um and it's uh i've I have not seen all of the decalogue i think i've seen five of them despite owning uh the the entire thing um and I have seen the three colors trilogy. i think i just re- i do respond very much to how Kieslowski makes movies i think he has i think in a way it's appropriate that he would make the decalogue because I do feel like there is Uh, I get the same feeling with him that I do when I see Nashville, which I've described in the past as like it feels like God's point of view where he has tremendous sympathy for these characters and really loves them, but also is honest about them and understands how they how they operate and 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 often feels sad for them, like kind of feels uh, approaches it like it's unfortunate that this is going to happen, but it is. And I'm sorry for that, but it's the way it's going to be. And so just the, the patience of Decalogue one and just the, the sense of inevitability, but Often, with that whether it be in a drama or a thriller or a comedy, that sense of inevitability it almost always has a cynicism to it and a certain degree of judgment and even though this is about this is linked to a commandment, which is of course a list of rules, so if somebody's breaking that, there's going to be judgment. I feel like it's a remarkably non judgmental film um and the way he approaches his characters, even you know assholes and psychopaths. Uh, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say the character in red is a psychopath, but he's definitely a scumbag in many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, the judge, um, Cretan? what was that? Would you call him a Cretan? I don't, I thought Cretans are dumb. Oh, I thought Cretans were just like predatory. Oh, I don't know. I guess I'll have to look it up. Uh, but yeah, okay. If that's the case, then yes, I'd say Cretan. But even, so even then, I don't think he, I don't think he judges his characters. And so in Decalogue one, just, um, I was curious to know, you know how my students would take it because you know even though it's only an hour long it is a very methodical Mm -hmm. deliberate pace um but no they were they were totally invested and it's because they didn't use the term inevitability but it was because the the he strings enough you know uh harbingers throughout the film that the kids just instinctively knew it's like something (laughs) <laughs> something bad is going to happen here. And they didn't necessarily know what, and then sure enough it did. So like they don't, it's not a thriller. It's not suspenseful. It's not even vaguely Hitchcockian maybe a little bit, but not, not totally. It is a straightforward drama. And yet one one of my students described it as like he was on the edge of his seat, mm. like waiting to see what was going to happen, even though he had no idea what it could possibly be. And so it's it's just a marvelous film. And, and immediately I was like, okay, well, when I have time, when I get back from Orlando, uh, I'm going to have to watch the entire Decalogue. Yeah.
0: Did you ever see? Speaking of Kieslowski, did you ever see Heaven? The movie, Tom Tickfair made a movie of Krzysztof Kiewiczkowski's last
1: is that unproduced with, script. Is that with Kate Blanchett? Kate Blanchett and G. Vinery Beast. I have not. Weird. Okay.
0: Because I think they're, both Tom Tickfair, who did Run the Little Run and mm-hmm. Princess and the Warrior and Cloud Atlas, along with the Wachowskis, yeah. um, both Tom Tickfair and Kieslowski are tied into the spiritual in certain ways, but they're mm-hmm. coming at them from very different angles. Sure. Made from heaven's a weird movie, but I remember like I, mean, I think it got a bad reputation. I remember kind of liking it. Anyway, uh, that's not what I talked about. Okay, or I—that's not what I'm going to talk about. Uh, what I watched just uh, a couple of nights ago—you uh, can read my review already. I watched Anthony and Joe Russo's Avengers Endgame. Mm-hmm. And this is the uh, I guess direct sequel to Avengers Infinity War from yeah. a year ago. Um, and uh, well, here's the first thing I'm going to say. I was at TCM Fest a couple Mm -hmm. weeks ago. Hello Dolly, not even two and a half hours long, has an intermission. Okay. Avengers Endgame, over three hours, no intermission. Only just... Either way, it's, I know. I, what I'm I saying know. is, I couldn't. I'm gonna. Uh, I, I had to run to the bathroom at one point. I missed. Yeah, uh, I missed. A, in fact, I can't wait for you to see it tonight because I'm gonna ask you what happened because I came back in to the theater to a big laugh and I was like, "Fuck, I missed a big <laughs> laugh." So I'm gonna like, uh, well, tomorrow morning probably I'll ask you uh, mm. what happened at a certain point. But I don't even want to give you the setup now. To I don't. Yeah, uh, yeah. i well, be on the lookout because it could be a spoiler. I'm gonna avoid spoilers now because uh, I'm not gonna talk too much about it. Just. Um I'm in the minority on on this. I just I loved Infinity War
1: so much and uh I I feel like and you and I'll say this, you did not love it when you first saw it. You didn't dislike it at all, but uh like I was really enthusiastic about it and you had a couple reservations you know, and uh, and over time yeah. you came to love it.
0: I'm glad you said it cuz I like today I was thinking, should I go back and read my Infinity War review because I kind of remember that happening. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah, I had forgotten um, because I really just came to love that Infinity War, for something that is so much a corporate product yeah, uh, and is so overseen by, you know, we talk about it as a Russo Brothers movie, but Kevin Feige is overseeing this mm-hmm. and making sure things stay on track. Infinity War felt so unexpected in so many ways. Its structure is weird. Mm-hmm. It's super episodic. Um, it's way more, it's a lot of fun. I feel like that's something people forget until they rewatch it because you leave infinity war completely despondent. Yeah. Even I, I was like, Oh, I feel bad. Like when I left infinity War, I was like, I feel bad. Yeah. But then when I think about it, it's like, Oh wait, no, the movie's two hours and 20 minutes of a blast. Yeah. Then the end and which it makes the end like more of a gut punch. Um, it's yeah, it's so fun. It's so funny. Mm-hmm. Um, which I feel like a lot of times Marvel movies these days, uh, like they sort of adopted just John Favreau, Joss Whedon sort of jokiness. Yeah. But like Captain Marvel had that tone, but isn't like Captain Marvel isn't actually funny. No, it is not. Um, whereas Infinity War actually was funny. Mostly Tom Holland.
1: <laughs> um, I'm not really familiar with him outside of this. Uh, yeah, and I guess I'm not either. I mean, I, obviously, Spider-Man Homecoming, and then I st- I saw him in uh, Lost City of Z, but that was basically a
0: Oh, right, yeah, he's the younger, the the son. Yeah. So, or the older of the two sons, I think. Right? Isn't he the older son? Older, I believe, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, so this is uh, me talking about how much I love Infinity War because I don't want to, like... I was like, I posted a negative review, but I haven't, like, been on Twitter being like, "In game sucks, because I don't want to, like... Uh, harsh people's mellow, you know. I don't know, mm-hmm. Like I don't want to harsh people's buzz. I don't want to uh, act. I don't want to seem like the contrarian who's raining on people's parades. Mm-hmm. Um But uh, I did just feel let down that Endgame feels like everything in Infinity War wasn't. It feels like uh, it's grim, which obviously I, story wise I understand. But th- this is still a, It's still supposed to be about superheroes mm-hmm. and the Marvel. Yeah. Like there's something about the Marvel house style that is yeah. generally pretty, not awful, but awful, like full of all, you yeah. know, and Marvel, you know, mm-hmm. and this one felt like the closest to like the Zack Snyder version yeah. of the, of a Marvel movie to me. Yeah. And then it's, it's just heavy. It's self-serious. It's, it's somber. It's sentimental. Um, and, and I, and it also, for a movie that's for a superhero movie that's three hours long again i don't want to get too many into the spoilers there is not a lot of action until there is a lot of action yeah but i'm but i'm saying infinity war had a great fight every 10 minutes yeah <laughs> and 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 this movie um really holds off um in a way that i mean there's a good way to do that you know yeah. to, to hold off until the big uh showdown at the end but um Uh, I I, I just felt like I spent the whole movie like sort of waiting for it to get going. And it just, it's
1: too... It's too self-serious. See, and, and everything that you're saying, because, yeah, I'm going to be seeing it after we're done recording, yeah. uh, everything that you're saying is exciting to me. Not that, I, <laughs> not that I necessarily like the tone of those Zack Snyder movies, but if the tone is earned, I'm okay with it. And given the state of things yeah. at the beginning of the film, again, I haven't seen it, yeah. but just like, uh, what happens when superheroes lose especially on a grand scale. Yeah. That, and when I, what I've heard about the film is that it's been so long, it spends so long grieving and mourning and watching the characters try to get back into whatever their lives are going to be now. Like that is so exciting to me. Uh, of course it's, I get really psyched to be bummed. Yeah. That's, that's always exciting to me. But uh, at the same time, it's, it, it, there's a wrong way to do that. I also think, uh, Okay. Well, okay, this isn't a spoiler because people. This
0: is Infinity War. I feel like the the main core Avengers, who are the ones who survived the snap, we've known who they are for so long that maybe I'm a little less interested. Whereas, so much of the fun and color of the Marvel Universe has come from like the Guardians and Spider Man and yeah. these characters who were gone, yeah. you know. Um, and so I, I feel like that's kind of a bummer. Just watching the characters, like I know. And then I also think with both Hulk and Thor, they commit to changes in those characters in end game that like props for committing, but I didn't, uh, I didn't think they really worked. Okay. Um, luckily I will say, uh, cause I, I, I can say nice things about the movie too. It does have funny stuff in it. Um, Luckily, Rocket's still around. I have not gotten sick of Rocket. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you have. I feel like I feel like he, Rocket is the kind of character that people could get sick of, especially since Bradley Cooper is the kind of actor that people can get sick sure. of.
1: Sure. But uh, I still like Rocket. Uh, because I never loved Rocket, I never got sick of him. Okay. But I also never loved him, yeah. so I'm fine with him just being there.
0: Yeah. Uh, he's in it a lot. Um, uh, yeah, the, uh, the only two, I think, non-main Avengers who are
1: in it a bunch are rocket and Nebula. Cause yeah. they're the ones who survived. I am excited. I'm actually excited that Nebula is still around. Yeah. Partially. Cause like I'm familiar with the original comic and Nebula has a very large role to play.
0: And that's also like, um, cause one of the great things about infinity war was seeing the pairing of characters we'd never mm. seen before. You know, the idea of Spider-Man and Dr. Strange. That's yeah. like, that's, that's great. And again, there's less chance for that yeah. now. Um, it's even with rocket, he's still with Thor, which is who he was with yeah. infinity war. But if you remember the end of infinity war, the only two people left on Titan are iron man and nebula. Yeah. So the movie opens with iron man and nebula. That's a weird pairing that works. Yeah. It's like, kind I feel of like touching. that'd be good. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, uh, I was going to get into something that's more specific and okay. not spoilery, but I know you, I was going
1: to say something about the movie that you wouldn't care about, but our listeners sure might, um, Anyway, so what did, uh, what did you watch? Okay, so my last film, again, is a rewatch, but I have not seen it in eight years. Um, it is uh, Asghar Farhadi's A Separation. Oh, um, it just, or it will come up on uh, the episode we do. It, it, yes, it <laughs> very, uh, very briefly. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, so I was talking about uh, in class this week, I was talking about Iranian cinema, and I was either going to show. Um, Abbas Kirastami's Close-Up, which I adore, or um, A Separation. Granted, there's, you know... Which ones? I don't think I've seen Close-Up. Oh, Close-Up is so marvelous.
0: I've seen A Taste of Cherry. Right. And I've seen Ten. Okay. And I've seen some other ones. I've seen Close-Up.
1: Anyway. Uh, uh, Man, Close-Up is... uh, as I was describing it to the kids afterwards, I was like, ah, I kind of wish we'd watch this, but a separation is a damn near perfect film, um, with a, an absolutely marvelous screenplay. Um, it is one of my favorite movies you know, at the end of this year, we're going to be making a list of the 10 best movies, uh, of the 2010s. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, I, look forward to it. I, I just know that for me, a separation is going to be high in the running. Um, it's, it, I, it's just a, it's just a domestic drama. And yet yeah, not unlike, not unlike the way I just described uh, Decalogue one, um, except there, there's just a general sense of inevitability that doesn't seem to come out of anything specific the characters are doing. Whereas with a separation, the tension comes just from what happens when you have a bunch of flawed people, each kind of looking out for their own interests and as, as such being willing to lie or omit information, uh, what do you get when you put all these people together, and everyone has their own agenda and it 's and it 's all just purely domestic and it 's all people that are already under pressure just from everyday life and it is I'm I'm glued to the actors faces I'm uh, I'm looking for every paying attention to every little nuance of performance every little nuance of what a character is saying at a specific moment um when they're getting indignant when they're not uh I, I feel frustrated by a character often right before I feel tremendous sympathy for them and and at the end I just I'm There's a a certain type of sadness, maybe even a sense of resignation, not because anyone has done anything particularly wrong, but because it's just like it is such an inherently human film and it's and it's shot and edited and directed in a way that feels very neo-realistic to me um there isn't really even any use of music uh throughout the film it feels it doesn't necessarily feel like a like a documentary or anything like that or, or cinema verite uh but it just do, it's not gussied up or, or anything like that it is just done in a very straightforward way and it's a it's a testament to the idea that as much as I, as much as over the years I've come to understand the importance of cinematography and, and editing and like style, um, it is a very stripped down movie. And sometimes you just need like a, an amazing script and amazing actors and a director who's just willing to get out of the way, really, um, and just let that unfold. And it is just a, a riveting film.
0: All right, uh, my last film, right? Mm-hmm. And this is the last one for both of us. Yeah. Right? Uh, this is a movie that, I don't know if you were our Sundance preview, that I brought it up and I dismissed it. Turns out I misunderstood what the movie about. Okay. It's called Knock Down the House. It's a documentary. Okay. And I thought that it was a sort of puff piece. Sure. Hagiography about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Mm-hmm. Apparently, I should have read the description more. Rachel Lears, the director, picked... Beforehand, for th- to follow through the primaries, mm-hmm. four female Democrats challenging incumbent Democrats. I okay. think all male incumbents, but I actually can't remember if that's true or not, if they're all male. But I uh, basically specifically chose to fo- follow four female young Democrats mm-hmm. challenging incumbent Democrats for, uh, right. for house seats. Um, and one of them, she happened to g- frankly get lucky enough to pick yeah. was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, but that means that this is not a hagiography. this is a political campaign documentary, mm-hmm. which is catnip to me. I love that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, I do think now because I'm going to call her AOC from now on, uh, cause it's just too many, uh, yeah.
1: um, it's her Twitter handle. It's fine. Uh,
0: yeah. So because AOC won, there's, She definitely gets a lion's share of the screen time, sure. which I think makes sense now. Uh,
1: I don't know. I don't know. Um, she's also just uh, she's she's very charismatic as well. You the, know, it makes so,
0: sense. So are, so are the others, especially this woman. Um, um, oh, what is her first name? Uh, something swear. I remember her name is Swearingen because mm. uh, of Deadwood. Swearingen. Uh, yeah. And she's running against Joe Manchin. Uh, oh, yeah. Minkin how do you say his name mansion or mansion Manchin is what I've heard. Yeah. Um, in West Virginia. Um, uh, she's also very charming. Um, but yeah, I wonder if in 10 years looking back, will it seem, cause at the time I kept thinking like, Oh, this is unfair that we're spending so much more time with AOC than with the others. I wonder if 10 years, if AOC has a legacy, yeah, you know, and is a career mm-hmm. politician, uh, how this will play, you know, um, in the meantime, I found it, uh, very exciting. I found it very inspiring, but also in a way kind of in spite of myself mm-hmm. for a couple of reasons, because I, as a rule, don't like any politicians because I don't think that's what we're supposed to do. You sure. vote for the ones you think will do the best job and then you hold yeah. them to do,
1: to that. You're they're, You're not supposed to be a fan of a politician. I do remember. And this is, I, I say this very uh, cautiously. Um, so my mom and her husband voted for Trump uh and they did so for Supreme Court reasons, um which I'd heard of before. I was like, okay, all right. Um but I remember I was visiting them and it was right after the election. Uh oh that's right, because yes, because my grandma my my mom's mom had passed away, so I went to visit them and and so they picked me up from the airport and we were driving back home and uh and I we were talking about the election. I said, you know, I, I assume you guys voted for Trump and, uh, and my mom's husband said something interesting and kind of encouraging. And, and frankly, something that I wish more people in general just said, he goes, yeah, we voted for him, but now we got to keep an eye on him. <laughs> and I was just like, okay, good for
0: you. Well, yeah, but I mean, not that it's, uh, your stepdad, I guess you don't call him <laughs> no, that. Right? No, I don't. Yeah. Not that it's his fault, but, I would say the establishment or the actual elected GOP has done none of it, has that's has no, gone that's, out of the way to not keep an eye on him. Yeah, that's why uh, I, that's, which that's is why I say like
1: yeah. I, I don't like like you just said. I don't like the idea of hero worship.
0: Yeah, that's not what politics yeah. is supposed to be. That said, AOC is very cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like her a lot. I found myself liking her uh, a lot. Um, uh, but. Uh, the other reason that's in spite of myself is one thing that I found now I saw this at a press screening room in Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. very receptive crowd to the politics on screen. Sure. But one thing I thought was very interesting was how, you know, right wing, super right wing nationalist populism in America, but also in Brazil and in other parts of Europe, Mm -hmm. like has uh, you know, a, a lot of the Brexit thing comes from that. And, you know, I tended to, decry that, you know, that kind of populism and realizing that like, oh, maybe I'm susceptible, like I'm susceptible to populism too when it's my brand. Oh yeah, everybody you know? is, yeah. Yeah, and um, so I've, even though the movie it was, I think, I think the movie is incredibly well made. It's very inspiring. i I honestly think there are going to be people who run for office in 2020 and 2022 because they see this movie. Mm. I, I absolutely think that will happen. It's very inspiring in that sense. And so while I felt all that, I was also trying to keep a check on myself and being like, this is not like, like you were talking about, you know, this is not how you're supposed to feel about politicians. Right. They're not, you know, uh, they're not rock stars. They're pop stars. They're not yeah. heroes. You know, they're, civil servants. Um, and what they do is often commendable, but that doesn't mean that we have to like fall in love with them. You know, and I'm like, yeah. going to put AOC's picture up in my locker. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, I mean, she's very pretty. That's not the point. Uh, <laughs> it is weird that you have just a big set of lockers at your house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, anyway, there was one other thing that I was going to say about the movie that I forget what it was now, but, um, yeah, I, I definitely think it's it's worth watching uh, if you're interested in the political process. Uh, obviously, your experience as someone in the right wing would be different from mine, but I don't think sure. you're, I don't think you'd like it any less. You just feel differently about it because the movie is not uh, the the movie is a portrait of where politics is at this moment. That yeah. that yeah. where where like where populism or no. I guess the more. You know, grassroots and populism have some overlap, and I those terms don't necessarily mean the same thing, but um where we are with that right now. Oh yeah, I was gonna tell a story from the movie because not only is AOC a very charismatic person, mm-hmm. like you were saying, um she there's a there's a scene where she illustrates the idea and this is obviously people on the left aren't saying things like drain the swamp, that's a Trump, sure. you know, thing, but where she's illustrating how um, Crowley is it Joe Crowley? The guy she unseated. Joe, Joe, Joe yeah, yeah. Crowley said Joe Crowley. How he's out of touch because he she show, she holds up the that both her campaign and his campaign sent people in the district mailers, and she holds up hers, which is it's small it's just bigger than Mm -hmm. tiny tiny, like just a little bigger than a postcard it's one page it almost looks like she's advertising like a come see my stand-up comedy (laughs) show or whatever (laughs) yeah whereas his is multi-page you know it says brought to you by the whatever and and she eh, but she flips through comparing hers and saying like how simple things like he doesn't include the date of the primary into like the back page Hmm. Because he's so inside that like it doesn't occur to him that people don't know when the primary is. Yeah, and he, she also like uses like delivering for Queens and the Bronx is what he says, and she points out like delivering. That's an insider strategy yeah. word, you know. That's and and hers is much more uh, aware of what the people who are going to be voting in the Democratic primary in Queens and the Bronx are actually going to respond to. It's yeah. uh, it's in, incredibly insightful. Like I, you know, I I do like. Her politics, but just as a politician, the movie is incredibly uh, a a great
1: insight to how savvy she is. I I had a moment like that in 2010. I want to say I still lived in North Hollywood, and I was I was only then starting to pay attention to politics in any meaningful way. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, it's Los Angeles, so my representative was I think at the time it was Howard Berman, who was a Democrat, and it's like if you're a Democrat in Los Angeles, you're federal, your us representative. I believe so. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's not Tony Cardenas. Well, I don't know. I don't know anymore, oh, but okay. at the time it was Howard Berman. Um, and so he was, he was a Democrat and he, and he was the incumbent. And then, uh, a guy, rather unfortunately named uh, Merlin Freud uh, was running as a Republican. And, you know, Howard Berman would, he ran unchall- unchallenged many years. Mm-hmm. And so Merlin Freud was like, I don't like the idea of that. And right. so even though I'm, I, I, I'm a Republican and he was 28, he, Merlin Freud was 28. Howard Berman had been in office for 28 years. Oh, wow. And so he was just like, okay, well, this works out well. Um, and I went to. Now, obviously, like, I'm conservative, so I'm more inclined to listen to what Merlin Pro was saying, but, like, I looked at his website and he had filmed, like, these commercials, and it was like he was answering every question. He actually, like, f- actually cajoled uh, Howard Berman into an actual debate, Mm. uh, which it was very clear that Howard Berman did not prepare for at all. Uh, So anyway, so I looked at like Merlin Freud's website and it was just like all these videos, you know, FAQ, like anything you need to know, he will answer. And then I went to Howard Berman's website And it literally just had a link to the donate, to donate. That was it. (laughs) That was literally it. And of course he won by like 70%. um, And it was just that kind of thing where it's like putting, like putting party aside, like that is the, that is the danger. Like someone who is that entrenched that they don't even need to tell you what they believe. uh, They know that like, Hey, I'm the same party as you. I have a D by my name. You're, you know, you're a Democrat. So obviously you're going to vote for me. I don't need to tell you shit. Yeah. So just give me your money.
0: Yeah, obviously the difference here is that these people were getting primaried, they were not sure, uh, sure. the same yeah, party. yeah, uh, yeah I forgot the other thing I was gonna say that is also very um endearing about uh Alexandria Caesar Cortez, um they all the pri- they're all in different states. It's um I said West Virginia, once in St. Louis, my hometown, mm-hmm. and then once in Las Vegas. And so all the primaries are different dates, but they edit them so it looks mm-hmm. like they're all happening on the same time. And you see the other candidates like following the news all day, mm-hmm. right? AOC goes to vote for herself in the morning and then intentionally does not follow because they know they, uh, Joe Carley didn't even do any polling cause he was so sure yeah. he was going to win. They finally at the end did a poll and the poll said that she was going to lose. Mm-hmm. And so she was like, we're having this party at the end of the night. It'll be, I'm not sure. She didn't say what she's thinking, but she's like intentionally doesn't, doesn't follow the news all day. Mm-hmm. So she doesn't, realize that she's won until they're getting to the party and she's just taking sort of the temperature of the air and the party. And like, it's such a, it's such an incredible moment to have captured on film of her realizing that she won. It's really, really cool documentary. Yeah.